Thank you. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started. God, we come before you and just ask that you would bless this time as we um, take in your word, as we chew on it together. Uh, as you think about this story of the rich young ruler, God, we pray that it would make a difference in our lives. You'd bless our small group time tonight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in the heart of Orange County, here at Compass Bible Church. And I think it'd be interesting if we could somehow see a conversation, witness a conversation between, you know, kind of an average Orange County Joe and Jesus. That would be really nice. Now, Jesus, you know, he was walking around on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. Uh, there was no Orange County guys in his vicinity at that point in time. So that's not going to happen. But I think what we get in the passage Pastor Mike looked at this weekend with the rich young ruler is as close as we're going to get to seeing what would it be like for an Orange County guy to have a conversation with Jesus. Because if you think about Orange County, one thing that it's known for, especially if you've ever lived somewhere else in the country like I have, when people think of Orange County, one thing that they think is it's a rich place. It's a nice place. Another thing about Orange County that we all know is that for the most part, maybe especially if you take some place like Orange County and compare it to, you know, the Bay Area, you, you could say Orange County is somewhat of a religious place. In fact, some of the biggest megachurches in the country are, are right here in, in, in our neighborhood. It's a religious place, or at least it's a place that you know, still values conservatism to some extent, conservative principles and, and values and, and, and things like that. That's Orange County, and that's very much what this guy is. He's a rich person. He's a person that thinks of himself as, as religious, as, as a moral person, and he comes and talks with Jesus. But we find out the problem that he has is he very much overestimates his own spirituality. He, he overestimates where he is with God, and that's really a mistake that we don't any of us from rich, religious, conservative Orange County, uh, none of us want to overestimate our relationship with God. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to uh, this story of the rich young ruler, Luke 18. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And let's look at this passage again, probably a passage or at least a story you've heard before, or you heard preached before Luke 18, starting in verse 18, it says, A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is none who has left 
house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. And as Pastor Mike taught on that this weekend, he gave us these three points. Uh, Chris, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, these are the points. Reconsider God's absolute perfection, starting from the beginning there where he says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus kind of comes out strong saying, hey, why are you calling me good? There's only one person who is good, and that's, that's God. Pastor Mike encouraged us to realize that there is one God, there is one standard, and we fall short of it. Then rethink the extent of your obedience. Jesus said, keep the commandments. This guy said, check. And Jesus, kind of his response kind of shows, uh, really? Really, you've done all of these things? And then finally, recognize the call for unqualified faith. Uh, that Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be my disciple? You want eternal life? That means follow me. No conditions. Uh, no excuses. You're willing to leave everything to follow me. Let's go to the next slide, and let's just chew on that. Uh, let's just chew on that third point just, just for a minute. This idea of recognizing the call for unqualified faith. The problem with the rich young ruler, he wasn't willing to give everything over to Jesus Christ. And I think, again, he's similar in lots of ways to people right here in Orange County. There's a lot of people in Orange County that are very comfortable with Jesus. They would, they'd have no problem like him calling Jesus good teacher. They don't mind having Jesus in their life. But, you know, there's a difference between inviting somebody in your car to ride shotgun and handing somebody the keys and asking them to drive. The last couple of days, me and the rest of the pastors, we went down to San Diego on a pastor's retreat, which I don't know if when you hear pastor, you think a bunch of people out playing golf or whatever. Just picture us locked in a hotel room talking about church. That's basically what it looks like for, for a couple of days. But as we drove down there and uh, we went uh, to dinner one, one night that required a drive, I was riding shotgun in Pastor Pete's car. And, and even more than, more than that, he kind of assigned me to be the navigator. I, I was there, I had my phone when we were trying to get somewhere. I was saying, hey, this is the way that we should go. And that's how a lot of people think, yeah, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's right there with me. And you know what? Jesus is even telling me where I should go. But even though I'm riding shotgun and, and navigating, in that situation, where does the final authority rest? Who's in control? Pastor Pete is still very much in control. And at times, he openly questioned my directions, openly. Even though every time we went, he was driving one car, Pastor Mike was driving the other. Every time we went anywhere, we always beat Pastor Mike. Even in light of that, he still questioned and even openly thought about just doing the opposite of what I had told him to do. He was very much in control of the situation. He had veto power. Here's the thing. Jesus, he doesn't want to ride shotgun in your life. He doesn't want to throw out suggestions of directions that you should go while you kind of think, eh, I don't know about that. I think I like this other way better. Jesus wants to drive. And Jesus wants you to say, hey, Jesus, here's the keys. Wherever you drive, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I, I am here. I am all in. And unless you've made that kind of commitment, I'm afraid some of you might really end up being like the rich young ruler. Good, you're comfortable with Jesus, but you're not really willing to follow him. And that's not really true Christianity as the Bible explains it. I mean, it's very clear in, in Luke. Let's go to the next 
uh, slide and see a couple verses. Luke 14, 33. We've already studied this going through Luke. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is making it clear. It's not, hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to bring all this stuff along. Jesus, I'm following you no matter what. Or passage Pastor Mike turned us to in the weekend sermon this, this weekend. Uh, go to the next one there, Luke 9, 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And, and this is people saying, hey, Jesus, I, I, I'm cool. I'll come follow you. And Jesus is like, really? To all of them. And they all have some kind of excuse. I'll follow you, but. And Jesus is saying, there's no buts about it. Follow me. That's the only way to do it. Have you, everyone here, have you handed the keys of your life to Jesus Christ? And how would you know if you've done that? Well, one, you've got to be willing even just to, to say that. And that might be a problem for some of you. Some of you, you might, right now, you know, I have not done that. I have not handed the keys over to Jesus. I'm still holding on. There's still a list of conditions in my willingness to follow him. That's not true saving faith according to the scripture. Or maybe some of you, you're like, ah, well, how do I really know? Not just are you willing to say it, but does your life show it? Do you show that you have this commitment to Jesus? And what would it look like? One word to sum up it up, and even what Jesus is calling for in this passage, to an extent, is sacrifice. That I'm willing to give up things to obey Christ. Is there any sacrifice in your life? Sure, yeah, Jesus isn't telling everybody to sell all your possessions and give to the poor, but he is telling you to be generous. He is telling you to give. Are you doing those things? Is there any sacrifice that you show to serve Christ, to, to serve others? Or does your whole life just kind of, yeah, I kind of do what's convenient? Have you really given over the keys to him? And if you haven't, man, tonight is the night, this is the week that you need to give up all those conditions and turn it all over to Christ. And even as Christ makes clear to the apostles there at the end of that passage, there's no way you're ever going to regret that. He who loses his life for the sake of Christ finds it, finds life. But the one who tries to save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. Where are you going to be tonight? Now, I know for many of you that you're here, and I would certainly hope that most of you in this room, you've done that. I've handed over the keys. I'm following Christ and this whole series, Made Right with God, Pastor, I've been made right with God. My sin is forgiven. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I've turned from my sin. I'm following Christ. I want us to spend the rest of our time tonight thinking, okay, what about us? Those of us that you're confident in your salvation, you see the fruit in your life. This message, which really is focused largely on salvation, what implication does it have for us? And as we think about that, I want us to get to the next slide and think mostly about this second point rethink the extent of your obedience, which came there from that interchange where Jesus says, hey, keep all these commandments. And the guy's like, check, I, I, I've done that. As we really think about what are the implications of that for us, even as believers, obviously there's an implication of that to come to Christ. But what about for us as believers? Because we don't want to overestimate ourselves like this guy did. The rich young ruler, he thought he was a pretty good guy. He didn't think he had much to be forgiven for. And I hope we don't fall into that same trap. We realize how far we fall short. And so the first application I want to make beyond as we continue to think about this idea of rethink the extent of your obedience is you as a Christian need to be more thankful for grace. 
be more thankful for grace. Because you're not like the rich young ruler thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. It, you realize, no, when I look at that list of commandments, I see a whole string of failure and, and, and sin, and I need a Savior. Let's look a little farther back in Luke to see an example of this. Go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And starting in verse 36, there's this episode that is probably familiar to you where Jesus, he's eating a meal at the home of a Pharisee. And while he's in the Pharisees, they're the super religious people. They're the, the teachers. Uh, as he's doing that, and they're also wealthy, as he's in that situation, this woman comes. This woman comes who makes everybody know she is a sinner. And what does that mean exactly? I don't know. One idea is maybe she was some kind of prostitute or some kind of, everybody knows she is a sinner. Right? No matter what she was doing, everybody knows bad, bad girl. Stay away from her. She comes in and starts washing Jesus' feet with, with ointment, wiping uh, his feet with her hair, her, crying over Jesus. And the Pharisee kind of gets offended by this, being like, what's up with this? Don't you know this is a sinful woman? And look at what Jesus says. He tells a little story in verse 41. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. So one guy owes 10 times more than the other. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon, this is the Pharisee, answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, as you think about this parable, and if you look at this and you think, you know, the guy who's been forgiven much or the person who's been forgiven little, if you identify yourself somehow as, yeah, I'm probably the one that was forgiven the smaller debt, then we're totally misunderstanding this parable. I used to think, I remember when I was a kid, I read this parable kind of thinking, this means that the people with kind of the really crazy testimonies that, that were into all kinds of sin before they were Christian, well, they're going to love Jesus more because they were forgiven for more. But, you know, us church kids that were, you know, good, goody two-shoes and ended up getting saved, you know, we're, we're probably not going to love him as much. That is absolutely not what this parable means. Even just think about it for a second. Jesus is telling this to a Pharisee. And he's kind of saying, yeah, you guys who've been forgiven little, you don't love that much, but she's been forgiven much, so she loves a lot. Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Let's just review. Does Jesus think the Pharisees are good guys? No. He thinks they're the worst. So there's some tongue-in-cheek going on here as he's kind of saying, yeah, you love little. Basically what he's saying is you're not forgiven. And that's what he gets to at the end of, 
uh, of the parable when he tells the woman, your sins are forgiven. He's basically telling the Pharisee, your sins aren't forgiven because if you were forgiven, you would love me much. The point of this parable isn't the people that had a really sketchy testimony, uh, you know, really sketchy life before they became a Christian. They're going to love Jesus more. No, the point is every Christian should love Jesus more because they realize how much they have been forgiven. None of us should read this story and identify with the Pharisee. We should all read this story and identify with the woman because we realize how much of a debt has been forgiven. We need to rethink the extent of our obedience and realize even if you were the church kid who who never did drugs or never had premarital sex or, or anything like that, you still have so much that you were forgiven for. And you need to be so thankful for grace. And don't pat yourself on the back for all of that, necessarily thinking, well, that makes me better with with God than other people. You were a wretch that needed to be saved. We all need to be more thankful for grace. And this should express itself in gratitude. And if you've been reading through, you don't need to turn there, but I'll, I'll turn there. If you've been reading through the daily Bible reading with us, I hope you've noticed the theme starting to stand out from Colossians, starting in verse, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, get this at the end here, abounding in thanksgiving. One of these central things that, hey, if you're going to walk in this faith of Jesus Christ, you should be abounding in thanksgiving. And then when we get to chapter 3, and he starts describing, okay, Stop doing all these sinful things. Start doing these things. Look at what keeps coming up in the things that he tells the Christians to do. I'll start in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three verses, three times, thanksgiving is mentioned. If you're a Christian, all of our lives, we should be full, we should be overflowing with thanksgiving, just like that woman was. And that should show itself up in your prayers, that when you talk to God every, every day, hopefully you're, you're talking to God and part of that time uh, it looks like you pouring out your praise and pouring out your thanks that God saved you. It should show up in, in, in your worship. When, when you come here on the weekends, when we're doing worship at Thrive, or even when you're just driving along in your car, singing, making melody in your hearts to God because you're so thankful for what he has done. It, your attitude should reflect this. Uh, John Newton wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And he's one of those ones that had the crazy testimony. Before he was a Christian, he was a slave trader, bringing slaves across the Atlantic Ocean in, in, in ships. He was a wicked man. But even at the end of his life, he looked back and he said, my memory is going, I don't remember much, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior. And even notice how he says those in the present tense. And say, man, I was a great sinner and I had a great Savior. No, I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior. All of us should be able to identify with that statement. But as we think about this idea, I don't want to, you know, overestimate the extent of my obedience. Certainly, that's a stumbling block for some people in Orange County in just coming to salvation. 
that to, in order to be saved, you need to realize I'm a sinner, I need a savior. And a lot of people around here are thinking, I'm pretty good, haven't killed anybody, haven't committed adultery, I don't see why I'm so bad, why I need a, a savior. But it's also a stumbling block, and if you're a Christian, hopefully you've gotten over that stumbling block. You've seen, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. But it's not like this idea of overestimating my level of obedience is just something that goes away once you become a Christian. For instance, do you remember when you first learned how to cook? Like when you first started to be able to make meals for yourself? I'm sure there's some of you out there like me that that just so happened when you graduated college and started living on your own for the first time. You realized, mom's not here anymore, the cafeteria's not here anymore, how am I going to feed myself besides just eating fast food or eating out every meal? And so you, you started to learn to cook. cook. That's, that's what I did. And at first, it was, it was pretty cool. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm feeding myself. I'm going to the grocery store. I'm getting groceries. I'm taking care of myself. Don't need mom anymore. Don't need the cafeteria anymore. Don't even need Taco Bell anymore. I can feed myself. And when I was you know, just out of college, just living on my own for the first time, you're thinking, hey, this is a pretty cool thing. But I lived close to my brother and, and his wife at the time, and so I'd go over to their house frequently, and his wife, well, she can really cook. And often, one of the things that they did when I was over at their house is they would watch the Food Network. And I'm watching those people, and they can really, really cook. And so I start looking at all of that, and I'm thinking, man, I can cook now. I'm good. And then I start looking at these people, and I'm like, I can't cook. I'm in this situation where I'm a world away from where I was. I can feed myself now. But man, there's there's a long way that I have left to go. And here's the thing. As a Christian, there's some similarities that we'll experience to that in our own lives. That hopefully we should look back and say, man, there is such a difference from the person I was to the person I am now. But hopefully, I mean, we don't turn on the Food Network. We, We open up God's word. And we look at this and we should see, yeah, I'm a world away from where I started, but you know what? I have a long way to go. And so as we rethink the extent of our obedience, another implication for us as believers, number two, is that you need to be more eager for growth. Be more eager for growth. Don't, as a Christian, start thinking, you know, Jesus tells, you know, the commandments. I didn't used to be doing those, but now I am. You know, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job. Hopefully there is fruit, there's growth. We don't want to be going around beating ourselves up, but hopefully we still have a sense that we have a long way to go. If you want to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he knew what it was like to be forgiven much. He was one of those guys with the incredible pre-conversion testimony. But, man, when he became Christian, he wasn't just like, you know, this is great. I'm not killing Christians anymore. I'm not hauling them off into jail. I'm, 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 I'm doing pretty good. Time to kick it into spiritual cruise control. Look at what he says in Philippians 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, talking about perfection, talking about the resurrection from the dead, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus, because Christ Jesus had, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's saying, hey, 
It doesn't matter how far I've come. The only thing I'm thinking about is how can I push forward? How can I keep growing? And he says there, hey, if you're mature as a Christian, you're not going to think, I'm a really mature Christian. You're more than anybody going to be thinking, man, how can I grow? How can I become more like Jesus? Paul, he's pressing on. He's pushing ahead. Let's not overestimate ourselves and think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm crushing it. Now, hopefully we're, we're seeing growth. Hopefully we're, we're, we're seeing lots of good things going on in our lives. But we still always have that hunger. But I want to know God more. And even as we talk about be eager for growth, we're specifically talking about doing. We're talking about growth in obedience. That I want my life to look more like Jesus Christ. I want it to look less and less and less of what I was and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And you need to think this way every time you show up to church. Every time you show up to church, you shouldn't expect to just, yeah, I know that, and I know that, and I know that, and I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. All right, good. What's next? And we should always come in thinking, you know what, hopefully I'm going to hear things that I know. Hopefully I'm going to hear things that confirm, yeah, I'm doing that, but I should always come in hungry. God, show me how I can grow more. Show me how I can look more like Christ. And everybody in this room should think that way. From if you just got saved last month to if you're a mentor couple, you should all show up to church. You should open up your Bibles for your quiet time saying, God, show me my life. I'm looking in the mirror. Show me what needs to change. We should have that hunger. You should show up that week to every, that, every week that way to thrive. This is what we're all about talking about what we heard on the weekend, getting in our small groups and talking about what difference is this going to make. And one area that you especially need to not settle for your current level of obedience is your marriage. None of us should, husbands should be able to open up, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Check. What's next? Hopefully, men in this room, you are faithfully loving your wives. But when the standard is, as Christ loved the church, I guarantee you, we've all got room to grow. And all the wives said, amen. <laughs> but we should all think that way. We should all have this hunger for growth. And it's not, you know, this, this pressure of, oh, I better, God's going to be mad at me if I don't. No, our standing with God, we're made right with God through what Jesus did for us on the cross. But now there should be this sense that, oh, I have this distaste for who I used to be, and I've tasted and seen that God is good, and I want to put as much distance between my old self and me as I can, and I want to get as close to Christ as I can, and that's a journey that's going to last until the day you and I die. And every day, we want to get up, and we want to run that direction together. But let's not grow complacent. Orange County, it can be a very comfortable place, even just the, the weather. If you have problems with the weather in Orange County, you clearly have not really lived any other places. It's a comfortable place to live. But here's the thing, the Christian life was not designed to be comfortable. And we don't want to kind of bring this complacency into the Christian life thinking, you know, I wasn't that bad, or you know what, I'm doing pretty good. We all want to stay hungry. We want to remain grateful for God's grace that he gave us. That should show itself in daily gratitude in our lives. And we want to be hungry and eager for growth. So even let's attack that as we 
go to our small groups and look at these questions. Let's go eager, all thinking, God, how can I grow? How can I change? How can I be more like Jesus? Let's pray together. God, that's our cry. We want to be more like Jesus. God, I pray that everybody in this room can say, God, I've left everything. Jesus is in the driver's seat. I'm following him. But then, God, I pray that we wouldn't just throw the, the passenger seat into, into recline and close our eyes and think, man, I'm doing good now. But, God, that we would just, even just because we've seen how good you are, God, that we would want to grow, that we'd be hungry for that. God, and I pray that we would attack church on the weekends, thrive, our own personal quiet times every day, just with an eagerness. God, show me how I can grow. Show me how I can be more like Jesus. And God, give us that edge until the day that we die. And God, give us gratitude until the day that we die as well. God, every day may we be abounding in thanksgiving because we know I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. God, bless our times in our small groups now. Amen. All right, let's divide and conquer.